Welcome to Study Religion, the official podcast of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Alabama. I am Professor Mike Altman, coming to you not from the friendly confines of Manley Hall on the campus of the University of Alabama, but about three and a half miles to the west on the west side of Tuscaloosa from my house. So the echoes, the noises, I think there's a lawnmower outside right now. That's what you're hearing in the background. But I, I'm coming to you here in the middle of summer with a new episode with an interview that has been sitting on my hard drive for far too long and we need to get it out into the world. Um, this past spring, my colleague here in the department, Professor Richard Newton, sat down with two uh, wonderful scholars of religion in America, uh, Emily Clark, who is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Gonzaga University, and Brad Stoddard, who is Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at McDaniel College. And the two of them uh, together edited a uh, new documentary reader, Race and New Religious Movements in the USA, that was published in August of 2019. And Dr. Newton has this lovely conversation with them, not just about the book, um, which is a great book and a great resource, but also the process of collaborating together on a project like this. And it's um, an interesting conversation about how they work together, about how they put the book together. And I think it's something that you'll all enjoy. So without further ado, I'm gonna turn it over to Richard Newton with Emily Clark and Brad Stoddard. So let's begin with talking about what is a documentary reader? So a documentary reader, um, one of the ways I think about it is it's a really useful pedagogical text. Um, so a documentary reader is a collection of primary sources, usually text-based primary sources, um, that are organized in a way that introduce the reader to the context surrounding the documents um, that then allows the reader to do some of the work of unpacking what that document means, what it's trying to articulate, what kind of argument is there in the document. Um, so one of the ways to think about it is a documentary reader was put together by an editor, or in our case, two editors, who are trying to craft a particular story um, using primary sources to bring readers into that story. So beyond just getting a whole bunch of documents, you know, a bunch of PDFs that you can download, you're really putting these things together in a thoughtful manner that creates a story and an argument for the readers to work through? Yeah, I think one of, one of the words I think about using for a documentary reader is um, it's been curated. In the way that we think about how a museum exhibit, uh, exhibit has been curated by somebody who is trying to tell a particular story, who is trying to um, make a particular argument and there's thought going into it. It's not just a grab bag of things that you can get your hands on, um, but it's meant to come together in a intentional way. I think any collection of, of works, uh, whether it's in a, in a 
documentary reader or not, but especially with, doc or with documentary readers, there's an implied argument that you're making just by including the text that you're including and the sources that you're including. And so our implied argument at a very broad level was simply that configurations of religious and racial identities are more common in the country than we, throughout the U.S. history, uh, than we tend to think, and that uh, this topic has been overlooked specifically as it relates to what we normally call new religious movements, but even more broadly. And so in that sense, we're, you know, we're really building off Judith Weisenfeld's work, um, trying to highlight that, it, that as, as Judith has pointed out, that configurations of religion and racial identities um, are common in African-American communities, but by no means limited to African-American communities. And so in this one, we wanted to focus, we have white groups, uh, Asian, Native American, and of course, different African-American groups uh, with the, again, the implied argument that uh, religio-racial identities are overlooked and deserve more academic attention. So how do you go about creating the volume, like going from that idea of you see a gap to getting this thing published? Like, what did that look like? Do you want to tell that story, Emily? Um, do we begin with that Oxford research encyclopedia piece? Sure. Should we consider that part of the prehistory? Without that, there would this book would not exist. So I think it's we should. It's true. It's true. So, um, I was asked by John Corrigan when he was putting together the Oxford Research Encyclopedia of Religion in America to write the entry on uh, alternative religious movements and race. And um, so it's like a eight to 10,000 word um, research encyclopedia entry. And when Oxford asked me who would be good potential reviewers, um, Brad was one of the first names that came to mind in part because I knew this was an area he was interested in. We had gone to grad school together. Uh, the piece went to him. And one of the things that I in the research encyclopedia piece, because we were specifically asked to talk about collections of primary sources is I say, you know, there's oddly no reader on this. Um, and the next thing I knew, I got an email from Brad, which confirmed that he had been asked to review the piece. And he was like, hey, do you wanna do a reader? And I was like, hell yeah, let's do it. Yeah, I mean, it, it really came down to that one line where she says there are different anthologies on race and religion, but there isn't one uh, on, that specifically re relates to race and the religious movements. And I thought she's right. So I sat on that for a couple of months and finally said, no, we, we should totally do this. And so I emailed her and she was on board with it from the get go. And from there, we had to start figuring out, of course, what the focus was going to be. Uh, and we ultimately narrowed it down to only focusing on groups that have explicitly racial components to the identity of the group. Uh, this are the, the proposal went out to seven different peer reviewers. And yeah, that was interesting. And we had a lot of suggestions about, you know, people say for would wanted to, some people said, for example, you should include the shakers because they talked about race a lot. You should include this group because they talked about race a lot. And that helped us narrow it down to where we didn't want to just talk about groups or include groups that talked about race. We wanted to do it, focus on groups that made racial identities essential to the group. And so the, the peer reviewers helped us, uh, helped us narrow that down. But I think from the beginning, we, we had a pretty similar vision for the volume. And did you work out the volume and the details of the volume and proposal via email? Did you 
talk to each other face to face? Is it happening on the phone, some combination? Like what does that kind of exchange look like today as you put together a volume? Um, it was all of the above, yeah? Yeah, it was like a combination of all of those things. Um, I mean, one of the things that was great from having gone to grad school together and be friends, it's really easy for Brad and I to talk to one another um, and throw in our real lives and our academic lives together in one conversation. So it was, a, I think, a combo of like Skype, phone, um, chatting at conferences, email, text. Um, and just sort of bits and pieces figuring out what groups made the most sense, what groups had rich primary sources would work, which groups didn't. Which groups had accessible primary sources. Yes, oh my God. Yeah. So yeah, you can't just, I mean, I assume you can't just like download documents and say, hey, I'm gonna slap a cover on this now. And um, thanks open source slash bootleg material. We're gonna, we got it from here. Like how did, how did you go about securing rights for the documents that you included in the reader? It varied um, group to group. Uh, so those groups that those groups that we were using documents that are old and thus in the public domain, um, those are a lot easier to get our hands on. But once you get into the 20th century, you're working with groups, religious groups and documents that are not in the public domain. Um, so that's where things could get a little, a little complicated at times. Um, so one of the things that one of the things I really wanted to include in the chapter on the Moorish Science Temple was a lot more from uh, the Circle 7 Quran. But a phone call with the person who picked up the phone for the um, current number that's listed for the Moorish Science Temple uh, told me very tersely multiple times, you get nothing, you can publish nothing. Um, but then would like keep asking follow-up questions about what it was for and then it'd be like no you, you you can't do that well what is this for again no no no, no you can't it was like keep like dude just make a decision um so we were able to use for that group the amount that you're um, legally allowed to use for fair use for educational purposes um and then pulled from things like the fbi files which um, are naturally in the public domain because they were created by the federal government. So it varied group to group. I know Brad also had to have some conversations with people to secure publication rights. We had to pay for a couple of things, which Bloomsbury was really great for ponying up those small amounts. But I don't think anyone charged much at all. No, I don't, I don't think so. Yeah, you're, uh, you're part detective with some of this. I mean, we were chasing around sources and all kinds of locations. Um, I exchanged emails with Louis Farrakhan's assistant, uh, emailed Malcolm X's uh, widow. Um, we, in some cases, we, well, in one case uh, with Odinists, I wanted to use uh, one of the main Odinists that are, <laughs> Emily's laughing, uh, one of the main Odinists that is active in publishing today. Um, I went searching for him everywhere and I finally found him on Facebook, right? And so I just messaged him and I explained what we're doing and uh, asked if, we, if I could use some of his writings. And he responded with no. And that was it. So. Uh, oh, no, I, that wasn't it. No, that was it, it for his it. response. That was his response. <laughs> I mean, there was no greater explanation. Um, but then on a whim later that day, I looked at his Facebook account and he wrote uh, just a heads up. Like, so he, you know, he uh, Facebook messaged this to his group. Um, 
to all his followers, that is, um, some ass clown named Brad Stoddard PhD wants to use our stuff. Keep an eye on him and his research. And uh, then other Odinists start, re they're not retweeting, like, what is it, sharing that on Facebook. So for the next couple of days, uh, that post was circulating among uh, white power Odinists, um, telling people to keep an eye on me and my research to make sure I don't plagiarize them. So that was, that was interesting. Uh, but most of them, none of, none of the others were like that. Like Emily said, there, there's really no formula for doing this. You find the document and you just try to figure out who, who owns it. And in the event that you can't, you talk to your publisher and the publisher tells you whether or not you can use it. Yeah, like what sort of skills, talents, competencies came out as you're working on this, this project? Because I mean, it sounds like you had to tap into some things that you may, maybe didn't get in your formal training um, in American religious history or history of religions in the United States. Like what sorts of things have you learned that you need to kind of pull out from your your uh, toolbox or um, kind of latent training? I think my background as an ethnographer helped with this because with ethnography, you're taught to ask the question and to make the phone call. And so I was, I was used to that. And so when it comes to, when it came down, you know, these aren't things, I guess we, I mean, I did take a class on, you know, advanced ethnography as a graduate student, um, but they don't teach you the nitty gritty of um, just, having the courage just to ask, you know, and asking the person that you're talking to for references, for referrals, right? Because people, you want people to refer you up, so to speak. And so having had that experience, I, I was used to it. Uh, and did this graduate training prepare you for that? Not really. Uh, but the experiences in graduate school as an ethnographer helped train for that. Where I was actually going to go with that question was working with librarians, which was not something that my was not something that my graduate training encouraged me to do, um, to work with librarians and work with archivists and build partnerships with them. Um, but they were incredibly helpful with a lot of these in terms of what is what does copyright law mean? Um, what does all of the weird legalese of copyright law mean? Um, how do you track down provenance um, for various documents and artifacts? And so one person who was really helpful for me was a librarian at North Idaho College who they ended up with some of the um, physical property and intellectual property of the Aryan nations after the Aryan nations were sued and went bankrupt. And so some of the flyers that I had from them that had been given to a colleague of mine back in the 90s by people just on the streets, I was like, how do I even try to find permission to publish things that were publicly handed out in the 90s Richard Butler's dead. I don't really want to go tracking down the white supremacists who believe that they're following his message in Idaho. Like, what do I do? Um, and this one librarian was just so incredibly helpful with sort of um, mapping out, okay, so this is who we need to ask. This person has passed away. This is who we need to ask. This person is completely out of the spotlight because she's, you know, ashamed of her father's message. Um, and so I sort of found that the relationships that I've built through teaching projects with librarians and archivists, like those were some of the most helpful people um, in this process. And the editorial assistant at Bloomsbury, who I think, you know, they've done some documentary readers. Um, and Lucy was a godsend with helping Brad and I with a lot of these questions too. So yeah, just asking questions, um, as Brad put it, like the courage to ask questions and then just sort of figuring out who who do you ask? Like, who knows these things? And you've both published 
numerous works before. Um, people can are probably aware, uh, Emily, of your book, A Luminous Brotherhood, Afro-Creole Spiritualism in 19th Century New Orleans. Uh, Brad, of course, you co-edited Stereotyping Religion, Critiquing Clichés, um, which is a super, super popular book, of course, around these parts of the University of Alabama. Um, what's, what made this project different than those that you'd worked on before? For me, this was the first time I had collaborated with somebody on a project. Um, so that was different. It was nice having someone to easily bounce ideas off of and troubleshoot questions um, with. You know, often so much of academic research work, you feel pretty isolated. You're in, you know, a library archive by yourself. You're in your office by yourself. Um, so having someone to closely collaborate with um, was different for me, and I really liked it. Well, I mean, your, your co-editor is your first round of peer review, right? And, uh, you're, you know, do you have to work together toward the project? I, I would think um, the, two, the two things that anyone who's thinking about collaborating with someone else and, you know, as a co-editor, I think the two things you have to ask first are, um, do you share the same work ethic? because that can be a problem if one has a stronger work ethic than the other. Uh, I think my work ethic is pretty solid, but Emily's is next level. And working with her in that regard was, I, I never had to worry that something wasn't gonna be done on time. If anything, even though I like to hit deadlines, uh, I knew that Emily, Emily, a deadline is a challenge to get it done in half the time that before the deadline. Um, so you have, to, you have to have the same work ethic or at least very close. And also you, I mean, no two scholars ideas are going to match completely. Uh, but you have to have an honest conversation with yourself and say, does this per do these, does this per do these per uh, th does this other person uh, mesh with me enough to where we can we can argue a point that we both agree on? Uh, it wouldn't have been the book, you know, the, the book that was published probably wouldn't have appeared that way if I had done it by myself. I doubt it would have appeared that way if Emily had done it by herself. Uh, but we had a shared enough vision, and you have to establish that at the you know the, the outset. And so I think those two things are very important if you're you know if you're if you're trying to get at what makes a successful collaboration. Uh, I, th I would think those two are points are the starting points. And in your collaboration, did you work on single elements together? Like for instance, the introductory essay to um, primary sources to come, like were you both working on those pieces together? You know, were some of those lines that end up in print are one person's and the others are come from another person or did you kind of divvy up who gets to write which chapters? Yeah, both. Um, so the introduction uh, was written by both of us. Um, and I think it was, it was the first thing that we finished because it was part of the original proposal was the introduction and six sample chapters. Um, so the introduction is written by both of us. We divvied up the work and then schmooshed it together. Um, and it actually, it came together pretty well. I don't think of myself as a I think of my writing style as very uh it's like a sledgehammer um it just gets the point across and I, and I say that as you know a good thing I appreciate clear writing um and I think Brad is also very clear with his writing so there's you know it went together somewhat well I think if you know our voices you can probably tell who wrote which section um but we divvied that up, put it together, kind of loosely edited each person's part. And then for the chapters, for the most part, those were, he had a list, I had a list, 
Um, we read each other's editorial introduction um, to help the other one out. Um, but I think that's another part of collaboration is do you, not only do you have a similar work ethic, but do you approach the writing process somewhat similarly is helpful too. Yeah, I think for the most part, uh, the person who is responsible for the for finding the primary source also wrote that particular editorial introduction. Each chapter has a primary source, uh, or you know, at least one primary source, if not multiple, and then an introduction to the chapter. And so I think for the most part, uh, the person who got the primary sources wrote the introduction. Uh, the only exception I'm thinking of to that was the clan, right? Yeah. I, I did yeah, that yeah. intro and you got the primaries? Yeah. The, the title is Race and New Religious Movements in the United States of America. And I think a lot of people would read that title and say, well, I don't teach a class on race or I don't work in the area of race. So why should I engage this? Um, it seems to me that the argument of the book though says not so fast. Yeah, to most people who say I don't work on race, so is this applicable? I just kind of shake my head at them and I'm like, oh, neat, you don't work on race. You're just like one of those people who say, well, gender is not important to my analysis. Mm, think, about, think again. Think again, buddy. Um, but I think one of the things that, it, that Brad and I are trying to accomplish in the volume is to say, to those of you who think only certain communities have race, deal with race, um, no, you need to think about race more expansively. Um, white people have it too. White people do it. White people do race. Um, white people do race in ways that are different um, than other communities. And so that's one of the things is actually we would love it for people who don't think of themselves as scholars of race and religion to engage with the volume. And even if you don't do new religious movements, uh, this book, um, it spans all of uh, United States history. Uh, we even get into some pre pre-colonial stuff a little bit. And so if you're teaching U.S. history, U.S. religious history, um, you know, nothing whatsoever to do with new religious movements, the book would still be applicable. Yeah. And, and I noticed in the introduction, you, you bring in Claude Levi-Strauss's term of bricolage uh, as a way of thinking about kind of the, com the complexities of identity. So how did you, how did you make that an entry point into, into this volume or how does that, that term do work for you? Um, one of the people who has used the term bricolage in a really useful way um, is Jacob Dorman and his work um, on uh, both chosen people, but also an article that he wrote a few years before that, where he was looking at, um, for lack of a better term, sort of a new religious movement, alternative religious movement amongst um, African-American and using put this in scare quotes, Orientalist understandings of religion to build a new sense of identity. And he uses it in such a smart way that thinks about how identity is never a solid thing, a complete thing, um, a neatly bounded off thing, but rather as communities, as individuals think about their identity, they're crafting something, they're cultivating something, they're doing things, they're pulling from things, they're creating something. Um, it, identity is not given to them. Um, and so that kind of idea of bricolage, of kind of pulling from multiple places to do something a little bit new, a little bit different, um, was useful, I thought. 
And Judith Weisenfeld's uh, term religio-racial identity also seems to dovetail quite nicely with that and, and sort of making, making space for uh, people interested in, in the context of the United States to see how this is playing out. So how does that term uh, operate for you in your discussion of race here? Like, what is that term for those who aren't familiar? I think the term religio-racial identity refers to a, a constructed identity that includes both of those elements, race and religion, as a core essential component or as core essential components of the group's identity. So to be a member of this group, to be a member of this group, one, it is a religion and you need to acknowledge it as a religion. And two, uh, it is a group that is, that, or it is a message that is directed uh, toward a specific race, uh, you know, as, as constructed as a race. Uh, and we do get into critical race theory in the introduction. We get into the history of the category of religion in the, in the introduction. Um, so having said that, uh, the notion of religio-racial identity is just that. This goes back to the bricolage, right? They're constructing identities based on a religious identity combined with a racial identity. And those are, those are essential. And so for we, from that, that was the starting point for, uh, for the study. And what sort of groups um, make an appearance in the volume? You have uh, Handsome Lake, Conjure, uh, LDS, Spiritualism, Ghost Dance Movement, KKK, Theosophy, Native American Church, Commandment Keepers, the Morse Science Temple, International Peace Mission Movement, Nation of Islam, People's Temple, Aryan Nations, the Nation of Yahweh, and Odinism. And sort of in, in the title of the book, we get the, the, the phrase new religious movements, that these are all what in one space or another are going to get classified as a new religious movement. And I know there's a lot of conversation about that in a variety of subfields, but in religious studies at large, like how do you go about using that phrase, especially versus the alternatives, whether it's alternative religious movements or sects and cults, like how did you how do you end up using the phrase and, and what are you trying to do with that um, for your readers? I actually started to struggle with that because the more I read that's critical about that term, you know, new religious movements, uh, the more frustrated I, I got with it. And starting, starting the project, you know, we're going to study new religious movements. I mean, obviously I was well aware of these arguments. Uh, so what we make clear in the introduction and, you know, you could decide for yourself if you think this is too easy of an out. But we're saying we, there's a point at which we actually say explicitly, we're not saying these are new religious movements. These are just the groups that are commonly classified as new religious movements. So I don't know if Emily would agree with this, but putting new religious movements on it on the cover might have just been uh, marketing, uh, you know, uh, that we're, we're and it, it does signify that we're talking about a certain set of groups, right? More or less academia knows what to expect when we talk about new religious movements or emergent religious movements or alternative religious movements. Um, so we're not making any claim that they are new religious movements. It's just that these are the groups that are commonly discussed. And the, the label wasn't as important to me as the content of the theologies and the bigger argument we're making about this, the place of religio-racial identities in U.S. history. Yeah, I think it's it's a loaded term. It means slightly different things for everybody. Um, I thought it was interesting that when I got asked to write the piece for the Oxford Research Encyclopedia, they wanted to use alternative religious movements. You know, there's the whole, um, I still remember Brad wrote his historiography paper in grad school um, 
on the idea of new religious movements. And I still remember very vividly um, at the seminar table with Dr. Porterfield and Brad going, I don't think these are really new. Like, what is that? What, why are we calling them new? Like, really t like taking issue with the category and thinking about what each of those words mean on their own and then what do they all mean together. Um, so it, it's a term that means different things to different people, but I think Brad put it really well there that when you use the term, other scholars of religion have a good sense of what you're talking about, the kinds of groups that you're talking about. Um, and so it becomes a useful term in that way, even as we might sort of buck against it um, in other ways. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, I don't see us making a contribution to scholarship on new religious movements. Uh, I see as making the contribution that I that I, I imagine we're making is more on uh, American religious history and even not even that, but just on uh, American social identities. What do you think someone who who's interested in issues of social formation has to learn from this volume? Like what what might be some of the big takeaways that this um, becomes a uh, window into? One thing that immediately comes to mind is I know when I read things in American studies, um, I don't think they do enough to take religion seriously in American studies. And I think even the field of American history needs to take religion more seriously and not just be like, oh, look, it's a church. It's, it's a denomination. I'm talking about religion. Like, no, you're not. Um, and so I think the volume makes a good contribution for uh, making a case that religious identity is an important element um, of social formation and if you don't pay attention to it you're missing a huge part of how people in the u.s have formed their social identities like social identity is not like one thing like once you start tugging on you know one thread of a community's identity you're tugging on all of these other threads too and so I think one of the contributions it makes is that like religion, when it comes to identity formation for American individuals and American communities, religion is a, is a core thread getting woven in there. I would just add to that, that the other side of that, uh, the racial component, um, by studying the racial component uh, that is, you know, of course incorporated with the racial identities. Um, we're learning how, important race continues to be even in the you know allegedly colorblind era which we all know better than that and what were some of your favorite parts to work on in this volume like do you each have sections where you're like this is like i've been looking forward to type, sort of diving into this or uh, curating this particular component um one of the things that i think that i'm um, one of the, the threads that i think is really interesting in the volume is um thinking about the Ku Klux Klan chapter, the Aryan Nations chapter, and the Odinism chapter together, I think the volume makes, a, one of the arguments that it makes is that if you wanna understand white supremacy and white nationalism in the US, you need to understand religion, um, that that is a core component of it. So one of the things that I think is, one of the elements of the volume that I really like is being able to include those um, Aryan Nations pamphlets that one of my colleagues was just handed on the streets of Coeur d'Alene, Idaho um, in the late 90s, that those are horrible documents um, and they're reflective of 
a historical and contemporary significant movement in the U.S. I think the section I was most looking forward to was uh, Jim Jones and People's Temple, Jonestown. Jim Jones does something with race that none of the other figures do, where he tells all of his followers, he's trying to convince all of his followers that they're black. And a lot of them are African-Americans, but a lot of them aren't. And he's using blackness to signify outsiderness. And so he's trying to invert the, the negative associations in dominant America, right? Uh, racist America that, that, you know, when people call you, you know, people call you black, well, you're damn right, you're all black, regardless of your color, because you're on society's margins. And so we as black Marxists, or we as black socialists need to band together. And, uh, so his, not, so his, his configuration and use of the religious or racial identity uh, was unique. And so in that way, it was, uh, it was, you know, more interesting than reading about, I don't know, white power religion. And for those who are on the lookout for your volume, um, what should they be looking for in the cover? What's, what's on the cover of your book? The cover is a photo of Father Divine and the second Mother Divine. Um, and I think this was one of the images that I suggested to the press. So I say this with a smile. I'm personally happy that this is what ended up on the cover. Um, in part because it was in emails with the current um, curator of the International Peace Mission Movement's materials that just, it was such an interesting email exchange that I had with him um, in terms of how they wanted things worded in the editorial introduction. I was not allowed to call Father Divine Black. I was not allowed to call Mother Divine, the second Mother Divine White. Um, I had to make very clear in the edit. So when you read that editorial introduction, you will notice the prose is slightly different. Um, because it was a requirement from them that I say things like he was in a body that society would have deemed black. Um, and so Brad and I even thought at one point, like, God, this email exchange should be in the volume. That's the data. Um, and so part of the reason why I love that it's the two of them on the, the cover is because that was just such an interesting um, moment in securing publication rights. Um, that also was just, it was so international peace mission movement-y um, for them to want us to make those distinctions. Um, and then I think the fact that Judith Weisenfeld has said a number of times that when people think about uh, religion and race, they automatically typically think about African-Americans. There's sort of this, um, the normalization of whiteness has gotten into the study of race itself. Um, so the fact that it's, um, it's a mixed race couple on the cover. I think that also um, says something about the contents of the book itself. What are you, uh, what are you seeing as um, the possibilities for using this volume in the classroom? I think there are multiple possibilities. Uh, you can use it as, you know, the, as, a, as, a, as a primary textbook. Uh, you can use it as you would uh, a primary or, you know, you would any primary source reader where it's kind of a secondary uh, to the main textbook that you're using. Uh, I'm using it actually in my class on new religious movements, and I'm using it as uh, a model of scholarship compared to, to, to other models of scholarship on new religious movements. So 
in my class on new religious movements, we're studying multiple things. One thing is, of course, we're studying the stuff that we commonly call new religious movements. We study, uh, we also start the semester off by talking about methodological concerns uh, and uh, about the study of new religious movements. But then we also study the scholars who study the new religious movements. So we're reading a book by Hugh Urban. We're reading a book by uh, Wright and Palmer called Storming Zion, uh, which has a very different take on what it means to be a scholar of new religious movements. And so uh, this book is, uh, it's gonna be the first primary source reader that we're using in the class. Uh, but I'm also using it to, to as, a, as to, to juxtapose our model of scholarship to like Wright and Palmer or Hugh Urban. And so uh, we're putting, you know, this is something I'm sure, you know, that you guys at Alabama do all the time. You're, you're teaching your students to study the scholar. They are part of the data. And so uh, that's, that's another way that you can use it as a, as an object to juxtapose with other models of scholarship. Um, I'm, I'm a huge fan of documentary readers in the classroom. I think for the majority of my classes, if possible, um, Okay, maybe not the majority. For a number of my classes, if possible, our main text is a primary source reader, um, in part because I want students getting into the documents themselves. I can fill in some of the context gaps, um, but I want them to start getting into the act of understanding a religious world that is often foreign to them or taking a religious world that they think they know and making it foreign to them, um, but also pushing them to start making some arguments themselves even if their arguments are you know just starting in um as i always tell them like if you're in this class like welcome to religious studies scholarship you are now a scholar um i'm going to introduce you to the data and we're going to make arguments um and when it comes to the groups that we label new religious movements it's harder to throw documents at students in the same way that you might be able to with a more straightforward topic. Um, so we wrote longer editorial introductions than most documentary readers that I am familiar with do um, in order to give more of that needed background to understand the movements um, on their own terms and as an outsider. Um, so I think one of the things that I'm hoping it will be useful for teachers in that sense, is that it gives enough of a foundation for understanding the document before it throws the students into the documents. And I think if anyone were just to pick up the volume and read through the way that it, that it curates, you know, multiple documents, but also um, these different movements and the people behind these movements and the theories that help you do the curating itself, um, I think they're going to see that really the opportunities you know abound in terms of what it can be what can be done in the classroom but hopefully what can be done in bibliographies um, on the study of religion in the united states but the study of religion um, broadly speaking so thank you all very much for a great conversation and for your great work with race and new religious movements in the usa a documentary reader reader out now with bloomsbury thank you richard thanks richard
Study Religion is a production of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Alabama. For more information on our department, go to www.religion.ua.edu or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash rel at ua. Have a comment or a question about the podcast, please email us at religiousstudies at ua.edu or reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at at studyreligion. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify and leave us a comment and a rating. Study Religion is produced by me, Mike Altman. Special thanks this time to Professor Richard Newton for recording our interview today. Our opening theme is Two Minute Warning by Stefan Kartenberg, and our closing theme is Saturday Night by Texas Radio Fish. Both are used under Creative Commons license. Thank you for listening, and roll tide.